0: Welcome to the Autobahn Country Club podcast, where your host, club member John Graybeal, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club.
1: Now, here's John. Well, welcome to the podcast, everybody, for our June 27th, 2018 show. This is our ninth show this season, and we have a great interview. It's with Tony Kester, the Autobahn Country Club chief instructor and the head of all the driver development programs at the club. Tony takes us from his beginning fixing up old cars with his uh, many brothers, driving them until they fell apart and taking to the junkyard and uh, getting another car. He also talks about his passion for the teen driving program and also the uh, Ladies' Day defensive driving program that he offers at the club. It's pretty clear where he gets his uh, passion for coaching and driver development. It was a lot of fun interviewing Tony. If you have an idea for another interview, a member, or a topic, uh, something you'd like to cover, please uh, just talk to me at the club or drop me a line at podcast at auduboncc.com. And now, I'd like to welcome Tony Kester to the Audubon Country Club podcast. Today, we're speaking with Tony Kester in the classroom on the, the South Timing Building. Uh, Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Where did you grow up? Beverly Shores, Indiana. Where exactly is that?
0: That's uh, between the state park in and, and, uh, Indiana and Michigan City. I grew up on the beach about a quarter mile from Lake Michigan. Uh, people asked me, I was from Indiana, was I a farm right now? I, I was a beach bum. <laughs> so I worked at a pretty, beautiful beach.
1: And that was probably a
0: pretty, really, a good place to grow up. In a lot of ways. Uh, we pretty much ran wild. There were nine kids in my family, so we ran pretty wild. Parents couldn't really keep track of us. And once we got to be about 13, 14, and people started giving us their old broken-down cars, and we started fixing them up, we had a little racetrack on the back roads, and uh, uh, we uh, used to drive them over there. Uh, I think the cops let us go out there because they were hoping the Kester kids would kill each other out there. So it was good mm-hmm. in that sense. So
1: what, what number are you in nine? Second. You're second?
0: Yeah. So you're uh, one of the leaders
1: It's the vice president.
0: Uh, yeah, kind of. My dad always introduced me as his number two son, and it really, really irritated me. I was his second oldest, not his number two. <laughs> what did your dad do? Uh, originally, he was a, a business agent for labor unions, and then he was a federal employee. Worked for the Department of Labor, HEW on uh, pretty much working on the poverty program back in the uh, '60s, '70s, '80s.
1: What What union was he? At?
0: Uh, he was um, my grandfather was the president of laborers union uh, in Chicago. My dad was a business agent for the laborers union. Uh, then he was with the Teamsters for a while, and then he got a job with the federal government.
1: Interesting. I spent a lot of time. I've done martial arts since I was uh, could walk, and my instructor is was the longtime BA uh, Labor BA down in Central Illinois, and now the vice president of labors International. Oh, uh, Union. So yeah. yeah.
0: So, yeah, that was Grandpa's union. He actually, he actually uh, was one of the organizers back in the 20s. He was a rabble rouser. Oh, yeah. That's right. Cra-
1: crazy times. Oh, yeah. Crazy times. He time. drove an Indian
0: motorcycle around. That's That was his company vehicle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, over in Indiana, in Chicago, it was Chicago, Chicago area? Chicago, local, lo- local number one. Local number one? Yeah,
0: my family. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. My family's from Chicago. Yeah. Uh, Really, Michigan City, west, northwest Indiana is a suburb of Chicago anyway. We watch yeah. Chicago TV. We're on Chicago Time. Everybody works in Chicago. We're <laughs> Chicago sports fans. So I was a Chicagoan. My dad's a South Sider. Very cool. Yeah.
1: Very cool. So you're a young teenager building cars?
0: Well, just getting them running good enough to beat them up on the back roads. Knew nothing what we're doing. We'd, we'd drive them around until they blew up and we'd take them to the here and somebody give us another one. I think they're just trying to kill us off. <laughs> so, you got them at the junkyard? No. People give them to us, and then we take them to the junkyard when we're done with them. Oh, you take them to the junkyard when you're yeah. done? Yeah, the local people go, ah, oh, they cast their kids now. They like cars. So we'll them. So, we'd get the car out of there, get it running, beat it up. It'd blow up. We'd take it to the junkyard.
1: How, how many Of the nine, how many boys, girls?
0: Seven boys, two girls. Five boys, then a girl. Then girl, boy, girl. Uh,
1: seven boys, two. And, and how, how, what is the age separation?
0: 14 years. No twins.
1: God bless your parents. parents were Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and your siblings are all are they scattered around everywhere? Eh,
0: pretty much. There's a few of them live around here, but yeah, it's pretty much scattered around. My brother, four years younger than me, was my mechanic and sponsor and truck driver and all around ass kicker for when I was racing. So without him, I'd have never been racing at all. So we were real close. Wow.
1: And where where's he now? Um, Michigan City area. Michigan. oh, she's still over there? LaPorte, yeah. <clears throat> oh, very nice. So tell us the first official. So so how's the racing progression started from
0: well, you were growing up? Well, I, I had a plan. My original plan was to be a shortstop for the White Sox. Okay. But since I lived in Beverly Shores, there wasn't any Little League, so I didn't get to play much baseball, so that was out. Then my next plan was to be a fighter pilot, and I got a full ride to Purdue, on a Air, Air Force ROTC scholarship, Nice. and as I was signing the papers, I read for the papers, this fine print said, uh, at the completion of uh, college, you'll start training as an Air Force pilot, but then the next thing said, if your vision isn't 2020 uncorrected, which it wasn't, you'll start training as a bombardier navigator, and I decided I didn't want to ride in the back of some with some crazy guy flying a fighter plane around. So backup plan was race car driver. And now what do I do? But I ride in the right seat with crazy people driving race cars on the racetrack. <laughs> so I probably should have taken the air force deal. <laughs> uh, at least they had an ejection seat.
1: That's right.
0: <laughs> Good point. Good point. So did you end up going to Purdue at all? Did you For a year. For a year. Studied engineering and just engineering just wasn't for me. Uh, uh, just. Too many bow ties and crew cuts. So I did a year of that and just decided I needed to learn about cars. So I became an a apprentice at a Chevy uh, store. I was a Chevy mechanic. Oh, really? Yeah. And unfortunately, that was the time, at one point, race car drivers brought a toolbox with them to the racetrack because they worked on the cars and everything. Well, that was the point where they were changing over from toolboxes to briefcases and being marketing experts, and so I kind of went the wrong direction. I'd been okay in the '40s, but in the <clears> '70s it was a little bit. Uh, it wasn't really the right thing to do. But I do know a lot about cars. That's one reason why I know. It helped a lot with my race. Had you been f- officially
1: racing as a teenager, or is that not yet? When I
0: when I started, when I was 21, when I was in my teens, you had to be 21 to drive road race cars in the SCCA. So I had to wait till I was 21. 11 days after I turned 21. They changed the rule to eighteen. <laughs> kind of the story of my life. <laughs> kind of the story of my oh life. My gosh. So when I turned That's twenty-one, it. I got a loan, personal loan for six hundred dollars. Back then, it was pretty easy to get loans, and I built a my first race car, which was a Corvair. I was a worked at Chevy, Chevy, so Corvair was made a lot of sense. And uh, ran Midwest, Midwest Midwestern Council for two years in a Corv, Corvair.
1: And this, would have, this was in this nineteen seventy-two. Seventy-two. Mm-hmm. What years were the Corvairs? I mean, what years they did they stopped mean?
0: making them in 69, I think. So it was a 65 Corvair. So it really wasn't that old. It was only seven years old.
1: So, okay, that's a great question here. So was the Corvair, uh, you can't yeah. avoid talking about Corvair and not mention unsafe at any speeds. Mm-hmm. And what's, h- how did you change it or how did it handle as a race car?
0: Well, the early Corvairs had a swing axle like an old VW Bug. <coughs> and they, were, they did have a tendency to tuck under and tip over with the rear suspension. The '65 and later Corvairs had Corvette rear suspension on them. Ooh. They were great cars, absolutely fantastic cars. And the only reason Chevrolet quit building them was because they were too expensive to build. Because it was like a Porsche—an aluminum air-cooled engine in back—and just cost too much. You know, it was a transaxle. It was—it was basically a Porsche. And uh, you know, sorry, Porsche people. <laughs> and uh, they found they were competing against the Falcon, which was real cheap to build. And a dark, which was real cheap to build, so that's when they came up with the Chevy two, which com- would c- couldn't compete them with those cars money wise. And they also was getting to the point where the Corvair was so fast, the next iteration was going to have double overhead cams and a lot of horsepower. It was going to be faster than a Corvette, and they didn't want to. it Was this a V eight? Was it? It was a flat six, just like a Porsche. A flat six. They actually truck. sent the uh, Chevy engineers over to Porsche to learn a few things before they built it. There were a lot of. You look at a Porsche engine; it looks a lot like a Corvair engine. Well, vice versa.
1: Mm, interesting.
0: Yeah, it, was a, it was a great race car. Great race car. It was awesome. H- how long did you race that? Two years. And then uh, we were always working on it because the sedan, it was, it was you know highly stressed. We were always working on all these Formula Ford guys. These open-wheel cars are going by, and they're like, by 6 o'clock in the evening, they're drinking beer on Saturday night. Well, that looked like a really good idea to me. They didn't have to work on their cars as much as I did. <laughs> right, right. So I got rid of the Corvair and bought a Formula Ford, which was pretty much the entry-level for anybody who wanted to run Indy cars in Formula 1, which is definitely where I was going, in my mind. And so I got one of them, and it turned out that we worked on that just as much as we worked on the Corvair. <laughs> Those guys that were drinking beer weren't the fast guys. But anyway, uh, it was a real good decision, because that was highly competitive back then. There would be seven or eight cars running for the lead at every race. It was just cutthroat. It was a really good way to learn how to race.
1: And as a kid, were you going Indy 500? Were you doing anything like
0: that? Well, no. My dad was... Uh, for about three or four races in '46, he was a uh, mechanic on an Indy car for Maury Rose, oh, and really? uh, yeah, and he was he was really interested in cars, airplanes, that type of thing, and uh, it just got me got the bug. And we always listened to the Indy 500 on the radio, naturally. But with nine kids, I couldn't afford to take us to the Indy 500, sure. so I went when I was 19. You have to go at least once in Indiana; they won't they won't give you your driver's license. I see. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I went. And it was boring because you couldn't see anything. So I've decided I've never liked to be on any outside looking in. I always want to be the guy doing it. Playing the game or whatever. Yeah. 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 So
1: so this is um, Formula Fords access so is mid seventies. Seventy four. Seventy four. Yeah. And did you have a sponsor or do you guys just did you buy a car?
0: Uh I got a used car loan from a friendly banker.
1: <laughs> awesome.
0: Forty five well it's actually it was uh for thirty five hundred bucks car cost 4500 I had a grand from selling the Corvair. I've still got the paperwork, used car loan. And uh, we bought this car. And I had an oil spot. At that point, I was getting oil, and the guy was paying for my uh, entry fees, which now is like 300 bucks for entry fees. Back then, it was, I like think, $25, $30. But it had a sponsor, Noel, Noel Brothers Oil. And uh, we went racing. We knew nothing. Nothing. And uh, we knew how to work on cars. We knew nothing about racing. Uh, they told us the pressures were 18 and 20 front and rear on the tires. They didn't tell us that was hot pressure, so we ran 18 and 20 cold, so they're probably running 24, 25 hot. So I slid around a lot, but I learned a lot. It took me a year to I – mean, nobody would help us because I was pretty fast. So people would give me their old tires, and I kept running them. I didn't realize new tires were faster. My competitors were pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> but we learned a lot. We learned a lot. I ran that for a year, and then the next year um, – I got hooked up with a company that was importing a certain car called Dulon. And once again, I, got a, I sold that car and got a, a new car loan
1: for oh, the Dulon. Nice.
0: I still got the paperwork. Where's I, the Dulon from? Um, is it England. England? And uh, it wasn't a real popular car. But, uh, and I got a deal where I bought the car, but they gave me free engine rebuilds during the year and a uh, uh, bunch of stuff like that. So that, that helped out a lot. still had the uh, guy paying my entry fees and stuff and uh, that was 1975, or that was 1975, 1976, and then uh, did pretty well, qualified for the runoffs in 76. In 77, uh, my brothers and I started a business that couldn't race, business didn't do too well, and went back to racing in 78, still forming the Ford.
1: And are you full-time at this point, through this time? After the, or i you always went, had a st- job. Still at the Chevy place? I was a sure?
0: Chevy, Chevy guy till, uh, till 76. We had our business for a year. Then I worked uh, as a truck driver, driving a semi, delivering milk. And just like an actor, you know, you're an actor, but you have other. That's not how you make right, money. Right. And then I ended up working at a, a factory uh, testing uh, air compressors and uh, uh, generators, electric generators, cell air compressors. So I was, had a full time job, and we would like when we go to Brainerd to race, we'd leave work at five o'clock on Friday drive all night, get there just in time on Saturday morning to go through tech and get on the track, and then the race would be done uh, Saturday or Sunday. We'd get done, 5 o'clock or so, drive 12 hours home, take a shower, go back to work. It's the way it was. Was there a season through the year that this was happening? Or yeah, was this, this yeah just year April. Around? No, it was April. April in SECA, the, the season goes from April to around here, goes from April to uh uh, September and then the national championships are back then they were in late October. Now they're moved up like September, I think. So you, you run a certain number of races. So you qualify, get a certain number of points to qualify for the national championships. And you'd go one big race to see who won.
1: Is there money in the, 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 amateur type stuff?
0: Nope. It's just amateur racing. But, uh, going along that way, then in 1979, I was ready to quit after two or three races. I had done pretty well. And, uh, the local importer of Dulons, uh was actually running a team car, and his driver didn't want to drive it anymore because he couldn't, he couldn't win any races with it. And uh, they put me in the car, and I did real well in it. And I supplied a motor and tires, but the car was free, and so we worked on it for free. And then in 1980, I had a full ride with a sponsor. Uh, that was pretty much the last they ever uh, had to pay for my own car. And the, I paid for the car, paid for driving, paid, paid for the tires, paid for country fees, paid for somebody else to work on,
1: 1980. And is this still SCCA type, mm-hmm. type racing? Okay. Yeah.
0: Then 1981, we ran Super V, like Tom Bagley did. And Tom Bagley was everybody's hero in Formula Ford back then, because he was the guy that went from Super V to IndyCar. So everybody's going to be like Tom Bagley. And people around here don't realize how special Tom Bagley is, or and was, and is. Um, did you race against him the same race? No. No, he was ahead of me. We both started racing this, We started racing the same year. We both started racing in 72, but he started running Super V right away. Mm-hmm. Okay, And I didn't start running. 81 ran Super V, and it was just a disaster. And pretty much just screwed him. It was all free, but it was just a joke. It was the bad car, bad guy running it, everything else. And it kind of took a step back. So, kept running for him with a Ford 82, uh, 83, 84. Uh, ran a Started, got a, Ran a pro race, a couple of pro races in the sports 2000 in 85. Won my first pro race on a street course. Uh, ran out of money. Where was it, that? Kansas City Grand Prix. Kansas City Grand Prix. In the rain. In the rain. <laughs> yeah. It was the first ever win for Hoosier tires in a professional SCCA road race. Oh, so wow. it made me, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in with Hoosier anyway. Uh, they've been really good to me. They sponsored me from 85 until I quit racing whenever i ran and you can run hoosier tires hoosier was backing me so that was a big sponsor for me they've always been really good to me it's a very good company good family
1: so when you're when you're moving from car to car uh today i i got a new car and i just took it on the track today for the first time i have no idea what it can do what it can't do but and it's cold here so i didn't really push it very hard but when you're in a race situation like that and you get a car and say you're going to race how much time do you have in it
0: how much time do you have in that new model of car? Is it just? Is it depends. It, depends. Sometimes you get you'll get a couple test days. Sometimes it's like, hey Tony, uh, I feel sick today. Will you drive? Will you drive my car this weekend? Yes, yeah, so you get in qualifying, disqualify it. And it could be a sports two thousand. It could be a Formula Ford, and it's really all those smaller formula and, and open cockpit cars, like radicals and stuff. They're all the same feel. You just drive until they slide. You break later and later until it slides. You. You corner harder and harder until it slides, and that's as fast as you can go. And you just drive it. It's little seat of the pants stuff, but you pick it up pretty quick. At least I did. So it's not. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure. obviously, the more you practice, the better you get, <clears throat> and also you get a chance to set up the car. Set a big deal. You know, equal drivers, the guy who's got the better setup is going to win. So it's very important. That's and that was my backing. My uh, being a mechanic helped me to make my cars better than everybody else. It was kind of a passion for me, too, so so I always just really focused on making my car better because I knew that any edge I could get would help me win because I never really had any money. So I had to deal with ingenuity and hard work, which ain't all bad.
1: And so you're
0: moving a wing, you're taking it out a couple – and where – Sway bar springs, adjusting the shocks, alignment. I also got into uh, heavily got into uh, 3D CAD uh, redesign and suspension pickup points. Roll centers, camber curve, all this stuff—it's—it's it's all interrelated to making the tire flat on the ground. And back then, most of the cars that I drove were built in England, and they ran on English racing tires, which were taller than American tires. But when you when you put shorter American tires on, you have to raise the car, but it screws up the suspension. So you'd have to re I kind of backed into it because I had to, and then I learned a lot along the way. Is this
1: something that you can visually see? I mean, with, with your cat stuff, or or is it a lot? I mean, when you're yeah, how could you get on the racetrack and then test it and change it?
0: Well, there was I, it. I would design the suspension, somebody else would do it, make it and then I'd drive the car and see what happened after a while I learned what I needed. Oh, wow. and then once you know what you need and its effect on the car, then you can just you can just re-engineer whatever you're working on. It's just a matter of no, it took a while to figure out what I wanted. I just looked at what other cars had and kind of figured it out. But it was it was into the late 80s before they really computers started. Coming into
1: mm-hmm.
0: a Vogue where you could afford them and you could run this stuff on a computer. Back when I first started doing suspensions in '88, you would put the new pickup points in, press the button, and go have lunch, and come back, <laughs> and it was just done doing the calculations. After about six or seven years, you press the button and it was done. That's how fast computers uh, uh, progressed. Hmm.
1: Wow. Wow. It, during this time, were you getting, like when you got your, your race license, was it? Like Tom tells a story about how he got his race race license. A guy just stood out there and watched him.
0: So racing school, Bill Scott Racing School. Is that how you got your... No, I couldn't afford to go to school. Uh, so uh, I just went to an SCCA. Well, it was a Midwestern Council school, so it was. It was just like the school we have here. And I just went there. I didn't know anything. And I just went there and said, okay, what do I do? And there really was no teaching involved. It was just, And I just had to figure... I never went to a school. I couldn't afford a coach. There weren't any coaches back then. I just kind of figured it out myself. Read all the books I could, and I was pretty good at driving from all the stuff because I learned. We had gravel that I learned how to drive on, so I was pretty good at car control. Pretty good driving in the snow. Uh, I read a lot, and, and things just kind of came naturally to me. So I didn't. It would have helped if I'd had a driving coach or gone to school because it would increase the learning curve. Obviously, sure. sure. You know, you give a million monkeys a million <laughs> typewriters sooner or later, they're going to gonna type Shakespeare. <laughs> but I mean, it would have happened a lot faster if I'd had a coach. But I did. So I just, just the usual progression, just like you would do here, you'd go to our competition school and then you just start driving. The advantage people have here is they've got Tom, myself, Brian, to help them along the way to kind of increase the driving uh, skills. So it, in, in a long segue into coaching, in 1987, I was just, just trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life, money-wise, job-wise. And I was watching the U.S. Open tennis uh, tournament. And Pancho Gonzalez, an old tennis well, he was up in the up in the stands, and they said, yeah, that's so-and-so's coach. I went, wow, a professional tennis player has got a coach. Well, maybe I can do that because I know a lot about race cars. I'm really good at driving, and, and I'm good at setting them up. I'll just start coaching people. Nobody was doing it at the time. Wow. There were one or two people doing it, but there was nobody doing it on a freelance. They were like doing it, okay, Rick Mears is coaching the guys for Penske, or this guy is coaching for that team. But there was nobody going around and just coaching people at different races and bringing their own stuff. And at that point, I was trying to figure out, God, how do I measure their performance? Now, how do I do this? There's just no way to measure it. You're just using a stopwatch. Well, right at that point, data acquisition started was invented. Computers were at the point where for 2000 bucks, you could get a computer that would barely run software, <laughs> uh, laptop. And these $1,000 computers that I bought, it was a systems that I bought. You'd put on a car, you'd put a battery in it every day. It lasted for about eight hours. It'd only hold about, about 35 minutes worth of data, and it only read uh, miles per hour. And it'd print it out on a piece of paper, like toilet paper. You'd have to hold it up to the sun to compare it to some other lab. <laughs> but I, I, I got that, and in 1988, I started just, 88, I started doing demos, free demos for people. And as I did demos, I started picking up customers, and that's how I started making my living in 1988 I was coaching race car drivers at the amateur level and worked up to the professional level. And, and as a data acquisition got more advanced, I just kind of advanced along with it. And that's what, how I made my living uh, was driving race cars and doing data, which at that time I started doing Ferrari Challenge stuff. And then the Ferrari Challenge guys started racing IMSA stuff like Daytona. So I started moving along with them as their driver and their driver coach and their data acquisition guy. So it kind of snowballed. And I finally got a chance to run big-time races when I was in my 50s. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, wow. By that time, it was, you know, in, uh, 2000 or so. I mean, I won a national championship of Formula Force in 1991, a professional championship of Sports 2000s in 1991. But still, there was nothing, nothing really money-wise. Ninety four, I started running prototypes at Daytona uh, Sebring, that kind of stuff. I just I started making some money do that. And then by the turn of the century, 2000, <laughs> is when I actually got a chance to run Porsches. And uh, uh, Daytona Sebring ended up at Le Mans for about three years there. So, you know, It's like way past my prime. Still fast, but way past my prime. It's just the way it worked out.
1: Hmm.
0: Hmm. Wow. So what, what data acquisition system did you build this system? No, nope, it or? was one that I read about in a magazine. I was trying to figure out how to quantify uh-huh. driving, and it was in a magazine. I went, wow, it's pretty cool. I called the guys up, went to, out to Phoenix, checked it out, and uh, I, when I got my first computer, I flipped it open and turned it on. and was wait, waited for it to do something. It right. just said A. Right, right, right. A. You know, a. Right. It kept flashing. <laughs> a. Well, come on. <laughs> and it came with software, and I just pretty much self-taught myself. Uh, I still use uh, a mile-per-hour graph as my basic barometer on how somebody drives, because you can glean so much from that. People get way too carried away with the complexity of uh, data acquisition. I mean, degrees per second of how the car is yawing, the how fast. It, it's like if you just look at a graph, you can tell most of what you need, unless you're at Indy or something. But for the purposes of people around the autobahn, speed, gravity, and now it's it's progressed to you can get a little aim system for for uh, what are they six hundred bucks, five hundred bucks. That will do 10 times, 100 times what that $1,000 system would do back in the day. And you didn't have put a 9 volt battery in it every day either. I use, my, for one of my cars, I use my, uh, yeah. my little software on my phone that's $15. App. Yeah, what's, what's the guy's name? Uh, Harry's Laptop or yeah. what I use. It works great. It works fantastic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah but everybody gets carried away with $10,000, $20,000 worth of data acquisition, and it's just unnecessary at this level. It's just totally unnecessary, un- unless you're doing trying to do certain things with it.
1: Yeah, the new car has a TrackMate system in it. Yeah, which is fun. I, you know, messed with that very first time I saw it today. Messed with it today, and uh, no, I need to set it up and stuff. But Mm -hmm. uh, I got a long ways to go there. I mean, my son, his on his cart, we spent last year with his um, acquisition data, and it took me. I read, I saw a YouTube video on a guy who talked about crunching all because it's a massive amount of information, Mm -hmm. you know, and you got to. Bring all that micron information down, and it took me hours to set up just a simple graph, exactly what you're talking about. Okay. But it was hours just to get
0: it, just to to get rid of all the other junk and just get that up. And if you've just got speed versus distance, that's all you need. You can you can cut it apart certainly uh, with with other things, with steering and and brakes and throttle. But if you've got the biggest thing to focus on when you start with a data acquisition was just to look at miles per hour versus speed. It tells you everything you need to know. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Uh, so this brings you into the mid-2000s about? Mm-hmm. And the
0: team I was driving for, which we did really well in 2002. We You're finished. still based in Indiana? or you still in live Indiana? in Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. Great place to live if you work somewhere else because yeah. it's cheap to live there, but there's no jobs. So I worked all over the country, coaching people all over the country, and driving cars. We did really well in 2002, finished second at Daytona, went to Le Mans. We're going to finish fourth but Broken Axles, so we're doing really well. And then, uh, long story short, I lost my ride because the way Porsche works, if you want to get a good engine, they'll sell you the engine that everybody else has got. If you want one of the good engines, Mm -hmm. which was worth four seconds a lap at Le Mans, or seconds a lap oh my at gosh. Le Mans, one of their sort of good ones. You have to you have to hire one of their factory drivers. So the team wanted to get the good motors and the factory driver, good driver, probably better than me because I was fifty years old, not that much better. But the motor was worth seconds at every track. Wow! So Tony's out the door, and uh, they get the factory driver. So now I'm done, and I was I was done. I'm, I'm tired of this because it just. Tired of the politics and tired of everything else, and I'm getting old. Who wants to hire a 53-year-old guy to drive a race car? So, what do I do now? Uh, a friend of mine was the chief steward for IndyCar. It was Champ Car at the time, and so he hired me as a steward. There were three of us, chief steward and the two of us stewards that ran all the IndyCar races except for Indianapolis, because that was IRL. So, we were around the country. My job was to set up the tracks, set up the, all the tire walls and everything, on street courses, uh, do all the safety stuff, and to deal with all the any anything we had a problem with had a data involved. Like if two drivers were screwing with each other, was the guy screwing with him or was he not? You could tell with the data if the guy's backing off,
1: you know, oh, messing the
0: qualifying. So that was my job there for a year, and they were kind of on the ropes uh, financially. And the next year, they wanted to hire me to be the. Did you enjoy setting up the tracks? I mean, that setting was up the tracks, I loved working. How with early I would loved. you go
1: in for a for a race? Uh, a
0: couple days early.
1: Just a couple days? Yeah. And you're coordinating. They have all the stuff there. And yeah, and I, I was
0: involved in, in doing it. They would have companies come in <laughs> that actually do that, that set up the, the street courses. The regular permanent road courses are pretty much set up. You go around just setting up cones for safety zones and things like that. Uh, but anyway, they were on the ropes money-wise, and they, they, hired, they wanted to hire me to be a, a steward for the next year and also be the chief steward for Trans Am mm-hmm. at the time. And they wouldn't pay me enough money. So I had to move to Indianapolis, so I just stopped that. Uh, and that was pretty much the end of my professional racing career. And then I, I at the time, I was working at middle high school for 12 years, doing my data, doing coaching and everything else, back and forth. And then by 2009, I uh, started working here full time.
1: So 2009. Did so it started. So you knew about the place. You had probably
0: been. It would never happen. Uh, it was. I <laughs> swear, like a lot of people. It had to be the 90s. It was definitely a long time before this place started. I was at Lake Forest Sports Cars up in uh, uh, Lake Forest, and uh, one of the mechanics said, "Hey Tony, there's this guy, Mark Basso. He's going to start this this uh, country club racetrack out in Sugar Grove. He says you need to call that guy. You should be the chief instructor. I <laughs> go, that'll never happen." And it did, but not there. And uh, per just through whatever, I ended up coming Had here. Have you been in contact with him?
1: Before? No. No, no.
0: no I was running a teen school here, kind of independent teen school here, and the guy I was doing it with ended up, ended up being this uh, Craig Cunningham. He ended up being the general manager, and he hired me to be the uh, chief instructor. And so that's what I've been doing since 2009. This is my 10th year, full time.
1: Oh, wow. And so the, so your first introduction here was was back then, and then you said so you were doing a teen program here, is that?
0: Yeah, and uh, in all their infinite wisdom, uh, the uh, state of Illinois <clears throat> decided to shut us down because in their law, there were two paragraphs. One of them said and, and one of them said or, and because we didn't meet the the highest criteria. They were, they were putting us in the same... Uh, pigeonhole as uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, what you take before you get your license? Driver's, at- Driver's, ed. Driver's ed. And there was a criteria we couldn't meet. He had a bunch of things we couldn't meet. And They, they knew that they, the, this word was the wrong word. But it changed the meaning of the whole law. Mm-hmm. But since lawyers don't make laws, they just apply them. We're just done. Uh, so it shut the thing down. And we actually had to, uh, it was just a big, long rigmarole, and finally ended up being some guy that knew somebody that reinstated the whole thing. But by that time, it was just through the Autobahn. Oh, Secretary so of State at their finest. <laughs> so that's how it got here. So did you move, ended up moving at that time? or you? I moved here in uh, 2000, I think 2010, 2000. I was commuting back and forth to Michigan City, which was a little bit of a long ride. And I uh, moved here and been living here ever since.
1: And then, the,
0: so when you first got hired, there was probably a couple, in no there was probably a couple hundred members, is it? That... Uh, I don't know. Uh, there were quite a few. I mean, it was a lot of members, and it was interesting. First, I was here for a month part-time in 2008, and we had our first Miata race I remember member then. And that year and the next year, in 2009, it was a bunch of Yahoo's driving, ra- driving race cars. They weren't race car drivers. They are just driving around like wild men and women. And since then, it's, it's really cool to have seen the progression because now there's a bunch of race car drivers around. Here. There's a big difference between driving a race car and being a race car driver. <laughs> and there are a lot of race car drivers here. And it's really cool to see the progression of talent and uh, ability and the way things are run and everything. Uh, they've come along, the whole place has come a long way. And it's cool to be a part of it.
1: Oh, neat. And so the teen driving program, which you kind of head up, is I'd like, we'll probably do a whole show exactly on that and get some Good teen, idea. teen guys and talk to them. Um, I know that my, my neighbor came up for that and I talked to his parents into it or, or offered it to them and they thought it was great and so they've been up there and he's, he just fell in love with everything. Cars and has a Miata and get, they're now looking for a spec Miata. So job is
0: to hook people. <laughs> I, I set the hook somehow. <clears throat> and you know, the whole teen thing, it's crazy if, If 400 people a year got killed in commercial airplane crashes, it would be the biggest, craziest investigation you ever heard of in your life. Absolutely. And people, you know, and people wouldn't get on an airliner. You're right. Okay. 40,000 people a year get killed in car crashes in this country. 10,000 of them are kids. Everybody piles right in and just drives away. And they don't get any, nobody gets any uh, training. They just get in. Oh, yeah. You know how to use a structure signal. You can parallel park and it's just crazy. You as a pilot realize there's, there's recurring training. You've got to get a new plane. You've got to learn how to drive a new, fly a new plane. You can learn to get your driver's license in a Miata, and you can go right out and buy a Ferrari and drive it. I wonder why people get well, killed. Well,
1: we're all right. Well, you're right.
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's very interesting.
1: And how? So, you just had a teen driver this week, this past weekend.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, Sunday.
1: And you usually have how many a year?
0: Once a month. It just depends oh, on demand. Okay. If we had a bigger demand, we'd have them every weekend. It just depends. just—it just it's people just, It just amazes me that there's always something more important than your kids spending a day learning how to save his life and lives everybody in his car. It's interesting.
1: Wow, but I know that that's a big passion of yours is, is working with the teens. And how- well, yeah, Of
0: course, because I'm still a teen myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's 16 through, what's the age group, 16 through? you
0: uh, 23, 24, that's okay. when their brain starts filling in. That's when you really want to, they're more of an adult, but it's uh, something in your brain called the prefrontal cortex. It's the part of your brain that tells you that riding your bicycle off the roof of the house into a snowbank is really stupid. All you got to do is get on YouTube and see all the people whose prefrontal cortex isn't filled in yet. <laughs> and it happens about 25 years old. That's the insurance companies and, and the uh, rental car companies didn't really know why, but they knew that anybody under 25, they didn't want driving their cars, and the, and the insurance companies had to charge more money because they had more accidents. And recently they're finding out there's a part of your brain, prefrontal cortex, that is, puts the brakes on the stupidity. If you think about the things you did when you're 20 years old, when you're over 25, you go, what the hell was I thinking? But at the time, it seemed like a really good idea. Well, I, see, I was snowboarding two weekends ago. Mm-hmm.
1: And perhaps uh, the beer I had for lunch did not work – disconnected my frontal cortex. So I, tried to, I decided to go on to the um, – terrain park and execute a few jumps that did not work out very well Well, for me so you're a pilot fighter pilot so (laughs)
0: let me tell you something the prefrontal cortex never filled in with you (laughs) like a lot of the people around here that drive the race cars (laughs) sometimes it never fills in yeah i think i have a a spot there that's not functioning right (laughs) (laughs) exactly and i think alcohol has a little bit to do with
1: shutting that down uh well my friends were on the on the ski lift they were just coming up and i go okay so i'm the oldest guy here snowboarding i'm gonna be the oldest guy in the train park, and I'm going to show him what I can do. Mm-hmm. And you did? I sure did. Yeah. Uh huh. It was. Uh,
0: and how bad did it hurt?
1: It hurt pretty bad. But your <laughs> you, the good part about snowboarding is your feet are locked in, so you can't tear a knee up, oh, but you can yeah. bang a knee up. Yeah. But you just can't dislocate
0: it. Yeah. So it, that's work. Yeah. You can bang them up pretty bad. <laughs> I can't even stand up on a snowboard. I don't even attempt it. I stick the two skis. Um, okay. So
1: in addition to, um. Teen driving school. One of your other um, programs here is Ladies Day, mm-hmm. which all of the guys want a guy's day. Yeah, desperately want a guy's day to do exactly. Have to work on that. And uh, I know that I've asked. Can I uh, a wife can bring a friend. Yes. I ask if I could be that be that friend, and nope. apparently, no, I
0: can't. <laughs> nope. We don't want to see you with a skirt on. Nope. Nope. <laughs> it's just for the girls.
1: Uh, so my wife will be here with her friend. They're look, super looking forward to meet some other friends here. So how did the Ladies Day become to get started?
0: Well, when I first started, they had Ladies Day. It was one a year. We did it, and it uh, was pretty good. And so we just had a demand for it, so we started doing it once a month. Uh, and depending on which day it is, and what what the girls and I, you know, and I, but sometimes when I call the ladies girls, they take offense at it. It's a compliment from me because I because. Guys never grow up, neither do women, and you're always going to be a boy, and they're always going to be a girl. It's in there somewhere, and you got to bring it out. <laughs> Anybody who's ever gone out with a bunch of girls drinking beer know that they're still girls, right? It's, okay, it's called girls' nights out, right? right. Well, anyway, so Ladies' Day uh, started, you know, people. Uh, it was very popular, and it's it's one of these things where first thing we do is we have we have a meal and we do some. Real, uh, we talk about uh, vehicle dynamics and everything, how the car works and everything else. And the girls, you know, they, they think they're not into it. They think it's only a guy thing. So we do the vehicle dynamics. Going okay. Then we get them on the skid pad. Then you can drive a skid car, start using doing the braking drill, do a slalom. And skid car exactly is? It's a car that has an apparatus called a drift lift that's bolted on to the back. It's got caster wheels, and it raises the back of the car up so there's very little traction in the back. So at 13 miles an hour. the Rear-wheel
1: drive cars?
0: No, front-wheel drive cars. Front-wheel drive cars. Yeah. Uh, you can put it on any car. Okay. Front-wheel front drive works better. And uh, at 13 miles an hour, it skids around like 60 miles an hour skid. We have a course you run on. You you never thought you could work up a sweat at 13 miles an hour, but you can with this skid car. Wow, so we cool. teach skid control. We teach Because you have to know how to brake. You have to know how to turn. You have to know how to control a skid. So that's the first thing we teach them. And all of a sudden, the girls are going, man, you know, I think I'm kind of, it's kind of funny. I kind of like this driving thing. Because they're going, no, I don't, really, don't know if I want to do that. No, you're gonna do it. Step on the gas. And all of a sudden they're having So then we come over and do an autocross. An autocross is a racetrack in a parking lot, denoted by cones. Well, I don't really know if I wanna do that. Yeah, they get out there and it's time, and all of a sudden now it's like they're having fun, they're driving hard. And the the interesting thing, the difference between one of the many difference between men and guy or men and women is when the guys, when the guys are doing an autocross, they're all going like, uh, oh, you know, you, know, you suck. You know this or that. You know that. You know big competition thing and everything. Well, with the girls, it's competitive, but they're going. Oh, that's such a good job, Susie. Oh, I'm, oh, very good job. They want to beat each other, but they're like encouraging each other. Guys are stabbing each other in the back. <laughs> so it's it's really fun. So anyway, we do the autocross, and all of a sudden we're starting to create monsters here. And we go, okay, now we're going to go on the racetrack. Oh, I don't really know if I want to do that. Uh, nah, nah, nah. And then you put them in, in our fleet cars. And it really, they're the only members that are allowed to drive our fleet cars fast. It's Ladies' Day, because you can only use jealous. Right. right. And so we go out there and we do lead follow, and all of a sudden now they're having some fun driving whatever car it is. You know, uh, they're having a good time driving. And they realize, you know what? I may want to get a spec Miata, <laughs> and so it sort of costs the husband a lot of money. But so it <laughs> snowballs like that, and, and it's a chance for the girls to the ladies to gain some skills we make them safer drivers on the street really and, do.
1: Uh, and and I do I would mention too there's the anti-lock brake drill yep or so you're going along and so you get to see and feel what when the brakes come on so you know you don't get scared and then take your foot off the brake you push harder
0: 50% right? 50 <clears throat> in 50% of the fatal accidents in the United States a contributing factor is the person taking their foot off the brake because when the anti-lock brakes kick in and the pedal starts vibrating they freak out take their foot off the brakes it's a contributing 50, factor 50% it's a contributing factor. Yeah. Wow. So, so we teach about a brake, teach about a turn, teach about control of skin. makes them a safer. It's a, really a defensive driving school to begin with. Then we get to the fun because everybody needs a good foundation. When you started flying an airplane, you had to learn how to stall it. You had to learn how to turn it. You had to learn coordination between the rudder and the and the uh, stick or whatever you're flying with a wheel. You know, I learned how the ailerons worked, how the elevators worked. That's kind of what we do here. We go to ground school and then we... And we do the defensive driving. Then we go and do the autocross, which is halfway between skid pad and halfway between race cars. It's kind of driving race cars, but not super fast. And we build it up where we go on the track because, obviously, the track is, takes the most skill, really. So we build up the skills. We go to that. Then we do lead follow. have a good time. Then after, we teach them how to drive safely. Then we have the best part of the day, the most important part of the day, which is cocktails with Tony. Oh yes. We teach them how to drive, then we get them drunk, and we hope their husband comes to take them home. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always really good, a really good meal. It's you know, yeah, obviously uh, the food here is fantastic, Katie, out of this world. Yeah, don't need to, don't need to explain that. Everybody knows it's been here one day. Yeah, yeah, pretty amazing. So that's Ladies' Day, and it's really fun. It's hectic for me because just you know, it's hard enough to can you can't control one woman, and you're trying, you got twenty five of you are trying to point in the same direction, and you know. <clears throat> It can be can be tough, but it's always satisfying. It's always a lot of fun. And that's once a month, also. Yeah, yeah,
1: once a month. Wow, that's great. Uh, the f- another thing you do is, which was again this past weekend, was the race school,
0: mm-hmm.
1: getting the local race license.
0: Is Autobahn that-
1: racing. Autobahn racing license.
0: Yeah, and it's it's not some. We don't teach you how to drive a race car. Since we're at the Autobahn, we assume you're going to be doing lapping on the racetrack and learning how to drive the car. This is a, and like most of these schools, SCCA, Bit of Us Council, it's procedural. Because it's one thing to drive, just like flying an airplane, it's one thing to fly an airplane, it's another thing to be in combat. Completely different deal. Well, you can drive on the racetrack, it's fine, but then in a race, when there's passing anywhere you want, where there are flags that you really got to pay attention, there's starts, there's stops, there's restarts, there's all kinds of things going on. You need to know how all that works. How do you how do you register for the race? What's what's a false grid? What's the grid? What do I do on the warm up lap? How does that all work? So we go through ground school, and then we go on the track and do a passing drill, where generally people pass, they're afraid to get next to the other car, and they end up twenty feet away from it and kind of mess themselves up for the next corner. And the drill forces you to be door handle to door handle with another car and become comfortable with it.
1: And who's are you guys out there driving
0: cars? No, instructor? we have. We have uh, some of our members come out and help us, Uh, and they're like they—they're kind of the dummies. They aren't dummies, but they act as the dummy. They'll—they'll do the right thing, so the other person kind of gets the idea because they're not afraid to put their door handle on yours. We have some of them come out, you know, three or four of them, but you know, it depends. We pair people up with experienced person or not experienced person. They just go out there and do this drill. It's not fast. It's just to get the feel for being comfortable running right next to each other. And then we run a mock race in the end, which turns out to be a real race after about three laps. Uh, <laughs> but we go through starts, go through restarts, go through, well, you know, a red flag. We Every flag there is and every situation within reason that you see in a race, you see so that you kind of know what to expect if and when it happens in a race. And uh, you can do this all in one day. That seems like a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know. You got to get stuff done.
1: So even so, so, I have not been to the school, so mm-hmm. in, and I'm not um, schedule wise and desire wise, I'm not ready to race this year. But this sounds like something I should do anyway, even if I don't plan on racing to get a lot of experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it doesn't teach you how to race, or it doesn't teach you how to drive the race car. It teaches you the the procedures. It'd be like taxiing around O'Hare or taxiing around Midway. You gotta learn where the heck you gotta drive it, right? Right. You gotta do it a couple of times. Well, that's kind of the way it is. You know, what altitude you fly at? For you, it'd be the comparison, you know. And this is it's procedural, but it's kind of that step. And it's the first step. When you finish the school, you don't necessarily you aren't necessarily ready to race. Some people are, because they've got a lot of experience driving. Some people may not have driven much, so they need to get on on the racetrack and really establish a certain lap time. Once you get down to a certain lap time, then you're ready to go race. You still only have a provisional license. If you go out and just are sort of total idiot on the track, but you know, you're going to get your provisional license yanked. You, you got to go to another school. Most people don't. That's why Tom, myself, and Brian are here to help you with that. That's why we coaching people. Uh, it's a learned art, uh, and we'll, we'll let people know. Yeah, you're ready to go. Go ahead. Start last in the race. Go out there and get a feel for it. Mm-hmm. Because just ask any of the members who have gone and started racing from lapping. maybe autocross or lapping to racing, they'll tell you they go through the gamut of uh, emotions. The race starts, it's this crazy beehive, this crazy furball stuff going on. And then since you're slow and nervous, they kind of pull away and now you're bored. And then about halfway through the race, the leaders come around, the rat pack comes around and they're lapping you. And now all of a sudden you're scared. You don't know what to do. It's this hornet's nest coming around you and you want to quit, you're done. And then all of a sudden you get tired of it. You know what? I'm tired of this stuff. I'm just going to drive and you get mad. And now you're ready. now you're a race car driver. You go through all these emotions. You talk to anybody who's gone wow. through it. It happens the first race, mm-hmm. and then you're kind of ready to go. And after after three, four, five races, when Tom who was in charge of license, decides that okay, you're you're ready. Then they give you a full license, and that full license is accepted by other sanctioning bodies to go and race. You might have to join. You have to join their club and you have to pay for one of their licenses, but you don't have to go through their school. They accept our licenses. Okay, you're qualified to race with us. That's why we're real picky about it, because Tom spent a lot of time with all these sanctioning bikes getting our license accepted. Now, do you
1: accept someone else's license here?
0: Well, you're not allowed to race here unless you're a member. But so yes. So if you are. Yes. Okay. If a member shows up, yeah, hey, I've been running SECA for what? Oh, fine. Okay, fine. Yeah, okay. You don't have to go through this. Okay. Tony, thanks for being here. Someone'd like to get a hold of you. How would they. email, it's it's real easy it's Tony Kester at AudubonCC.com text me, email me my cards are over in the member building Uh, Tom's are over there, Brian's are over there we're all really good instructors any one of us can help anybody and it doesn't matter if we're teaching you how to drive a stick just driving around the parking lot teach you how to drive a stick or get on the race car and just get a feel for driving on the racetrack or you're a really good race car driver and you want to get better, we do data acquisition we do it all, we help us set up everything that's why we're here
1: Very nice. Well, thanks for being on the show today. Appreciate it. And uh, I know
0: my wife looks forward to seeing you next week. We'll have fun. I guarantee (laughs) you. I'll have fun. They can come along for the ride if they want to. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Okay. You've been listening to Autobahn Country Club Podcast. where your host, club member John Graybill opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Join us next time for Autobahn Country Club Podcast.